I think people have learned from the previous uh, uh, movements. They've learned from uh, that street politics uh, needs continuity. Mm -hmm. It needs to accumulate and rather than just a one-off event. And actually people are learning that there's always a counter-revolution to the revolution and how to cope with that. Um, and I guess that's something new that I've seen in Beirut this time. And that's why I guess the latest um, uprising in Beirut uh, and in Lebanon, actually not only in Beirut, um, has been different. Nasser Yassin, I'm the interim director of the Isam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at AUB in Lebanon. People kind of know what they want hmm. um, to a large degree. You know, hmm. it's not easy to uh, to actually change uh, regimes, even if, if in Lebanon people think that this is a weak state. Mm -hmm. I think uh, in Lebanon those in power are quite. Uh, quite resilient, the roots in, in the country, the mm. system, the, the ruling elites and the way they regenerate themselves, I see them actually very deep. They have kind of deep states rather than one deep state as we see, mm -hmm. as we saw in Egypt or in Turkey or in Iran. Uh, the Lebanese deep state is different. It's like mostly comprised seven or eight leaders, sectarian leaders, so they're quite deep. In yeah. their, and entrenched in the state. So what when I say people are learning and they're more focused on their demands, they know what they want. Actually, we want you all out. Mm. You know, this slogan of like in Arabic, everyone included or something, and maybe you have better translation than me, actually is quite simple but quite powerful yeah. in terms of the meaning that actually we need them all out because they failed miserably in running the state. So the focus is on the whole thing, yeah. the, the way Lebanon is governed or, or not mis, sort of I, not governed. It's sort of a, the, the multiple states that you're mm -hmm. describing are all on the radar for these protesters. Yeah. And that makes it different than previous attempts, which may have not focused on all of these things at once. Exactly. I mean, previous attempts, um, like the 2015, mm. um, was mostly related to, um, at that time, the solid waste management, the garbage or the trash yeah. crisis. Yeah. But at the you know, essence of it was about uh, governance, about uh, you know, the running the state. Right. Um, and this time in Lebanon, although you would look in, into the protesters' demands and they look like they're mostly around... Um, reform issues, like we want mm -hmm. to have the economy better, we need to have better services, better electricity and so on. Yeah. But also if you dig deep, and we've been doing this here in the institute, you will realize that actually they want people want something new. They want actually um, to revisit the whole affairs of running their state. It's not mm -hmm. only reforming it. It looks like a as some political scientists call it, you know, it's not a revolution, a revolution, like a reform <laughs> for a revolution. But as a matter of fact, it's more than a mm. reform agenda. Mm. Um, although it kind of faded a bit now, but I think people continue 
and they will continue in different forms of protesting and what we will see we will see a continued you know attempt to look into revisiting the whole state of Lebanon right and Lebanon now is 100 years old yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so i guess it's time to look to look into this state that we call Lebanon and what people want from it and they want many people want it to be non-sectarian mm-hmm. many people want the state to be um, you know uh, uh, providing them with the uh, rights social economic and civil rights yeah uh, people want the state actually to be a just state it has to be a just one and you're describing the basics in of a way. course yeah the basics of any citizenry that wants sort of the, the basic needs of any population absolutely but you know I mean for for a long time we've been getting those services mostly through an intermediary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this intermediary has to be my sectarian leader my you know good leader my protector right and I think at the essence of those demonstrations in Beirut and in other cities and regions in Lebanon they want to shake this intermediary role of the Zaim or the leader you or know, the I, chieftain or the chief I, I, I want to maybe push on this further because it seems like Lebanon is rather late in the game that it in 2019 uh, you have a massive upswell for accountability. Mm-hmm. And I maybe want to gauge you on this. Why do you think it took this long? And I think time is sort of an important component to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you're describing the crony capitalism that Lebanon is used to. Of course, that's not just the last few years. That goes back decades. One could argue there were shades of it even before the war. Why is it that Lebanon sort of waited and waited and waited until things got so bad here and the economic situation got so dire that it took a final straw like the WhatsApp tax to yeah. send people to the street? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious of just why is it 2019 that Lebanon is waking up from 100 years of perhaps a mix of bad ideas? Yeah, yeah I think it's... Uh I mean, no one would have predicted the exact timing of the uprising, you know. Mm. But the writings were on the wall, you know, as they say. Mm. I mean, uh, we've been seeing an accumulation of failure among the current uh, uh, government and yeah. the governments of the last few years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I mean, if, if I want to reflect more on the situation, I think the 1990 Taif Agreement... Uh, was uh, to recreate a new balance, you know? There mm-hmm. was a balance in Lebanon in 1943 yeah. that was to have a country that gets Christians and Muslims together. It's mostly, uh, you know, was created because to give the aspirations of Christians to have a, a state, a republic, but also, uh, also there's a lot of Muslims, what to deal with them, so let's get this agreement, this mithaq, this pact, and then at after a few years, they discovered it's not working. There are a lot of people, you know, yeah. that were not part of this pact, right. uh, particularly the Shia and other rural uh, uh, Lebanese, you know. <laughs> so it started to shake, and and actually they tried to bring it back after 1958, and then in the 60s, all those factors are in the region shook the whole system. 
right? right? So the balance that existed in 1933 was broken in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. It was a new balance was put out in the Taif Agreement in the 90s. So right. we re- we built a new balance, right? Yeah. And that actually was shaken in 2005. Mm-hmm. But rather than going all the way mm. to recreate a new balance, we actually resorted. And those who were in power, those chiefs of sectarian groups and communities wanted to restore that 1990-1991 balance. That's interesting. So, so, so in a way, 15 years ago is the starting point to what happened the last few months. I think part of... The demonstrations in 2019 are continuation of the 2005. Because mm-hmm. um, that's quite interesting because that, and you correct me if I'm wrong, my memory of that protest, you had voices yearning for accountability, but they were sidelined very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the geopolitics of the story sort of took hold. And that became the, in a way, the Syrian withdrawal from Lebanon. Yeah. But you did, you did have some voices in the background Unfortunately, some of them paid the ultimate price, but they were not the center of the story. 2019 is where they left off. Is that? Am I getting this right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, 2005. Of course, the main story was uh, assassination of Rafiq Hariri. It was like uh, a security, um, you know, regime. Uh, and independence uh, was in the story. Exactly, independence. Yeah. We want. Uh, I mean, it's that started in 2000 actually mm-hmm. after the Israeli mm-hmm. withdrawal. So it yes. was like. Four or five years of build-up, right? But actually, people who were mostly active throughout these four or five years up to 2005, and of course, they were the main activists in the square in 2005, were people who were aspiring for a just and civil state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the the assassination of Rafiq Hariri was kind of the the main, you know, uh, game changer at that time it was the watershed that got everything changing. But they were aspiring for something that's a state that can provide justice, these basics, the right. rights, and actually we want all those armies outside. So, but the security part was, and the Syrian presence was perhaps the most, you know, impactful thing at that time. But what we saw in 2019, of course, a lot of the demands are around reform. But mm-hmm. I think the essence of these, if you dig into them, they're also about aspiring for something new, a state. Right. That's actually, we're not satisfied with it. Yeah. Uh, so the attacks were against those sectarian leaders. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a continuation in, in, in many ways. And that's perhaps when you see many of those activists in of the 2005 are again in 2019. Right. Uh, from by, left, right, or, or center. Exactly, because it's... I, I mean, so, so again, if yeah. I go back to my point on the balance, so mm. 2008, as a matter of fact, before we go through this historical trip that I'm taking you through, uh, so in 2005, they restored the balance of the Taif. Mm-hmm. And uh, sectarian leaders, uh, 14 March in particular, those who were in 14 March, mm-hmm. they said, let's go back to this balance. Right. So let's actually accept the status quo. Let's, you know, accept that we have things that are not going to change easily. And then it flared up again, but in 2007 and 8, also they restored them back. Hmm. So there, there was attempts to, you know, 
rebalance something, recreate or create a new balance. But 2008 and the Doha agreement also they accepted that we want to keep the Taif balance. Mm-hmm. So what I'm seeing now, 2019, is a totally new balance, a totally new, you know, like a pendulum now going left, right, and, and up and down. <laughs> it's kind of, in physics, that there's this, you know, not a disequilibrium pendulum. So pendulums go in kind of... You have 3D pendulum motion. It's kind of going, yeah, yeah upside yeah. down, right, <laughs> left, and center, and so on. And what the sectarian leaders are doing, that people in power are doing, they're trying to restore this pendulum to a mm. to swing... Was the was the uh, way of running the state before two thousand before before seventeen October, and I think it's going to continue, and the economic now factor is the the factor that will actually be the game changer rather than the Hariri assassination, and that will create a new balance. I don't know. I mean, not this balance, but people are pushing for mm-hmm. something new, and they the way they see it, they dream of it is something that's more you know can be can provide more justice, social, economic, and civic right. rights. But within that, and it's a, it's a sort of, it's a, it's recent history, but it's also quite a long time ago, that it took 15 years for the, for March 14, or whatever you want, the, the build-up mm-hmm. to March 14, to sort of start over. Mm-hmm. Even in that, there's a long stretch of time. What is it about the structure that prevents these things from happening earlier rather than later yeah but I think it's the resilience of the the current confessional sectarian system so it's the system itself I that, think so. that prevents people yeah. from changing yeah. the system yeah because mm-hmm. the system is quite you know resilient to change mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way it works if I want to make it you know simple it works through that it, it provides protection this protection that supposedly Supposedly, theoretically, I get from the state as part of my social contract, right? This is what I tell my students. When I'm born in a country, I'm a citizen, I have this social contract. I mean, there's no contract to sign, but virtually... Here's a sectarian contract. <laughs> exactly. Now, yeah. here there's the dual system, and the more powerful part of the system is where you're part of a contract with your sectarian milieu, if I can say mm-hmm. this way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you have to be part of the sectarian community. You mm-hmm. have to go through your leader uh, to get a job. You have to, um, if I want healthcare, I need, and I don't have any insurance, I have to go through my sectarian leader or his cronies to get something, uh, to get access to a house, public hospital even, or private right. hospital, and, and, and. So those sectarian leaders act as protectors, mm-hmm. act as, as intermediaries with the state. Mm-hmm. And I think... It's mostly everyone knows about this, right? But it's so difficult to challenge if you don't build this just state that provides, you know, uh, the basic rights for everyone. So what is the so, strength of the system exactly? So is the it psychological? The po- it's, population it's, is afraid to, to change it? I think it's because those... And that's kind of a shortcoming of this uprising... Mm. Um, those who want, who, who people want them to change, mm. are those guardians of the system. So, so mm. you know, mm. this is the issue of what's happening with the uprising now. Like, oh, we want, we want a new cabinet. We want them to be independent. Uh, we're not offering you anything. You need to appoint it. But I'm against you. I mean, I think there's something. There's <laughs> <laughs> something. Uh, I mean, I understand the gen- genuinity of what people want, you know? Yeah. 
and also they know the limitations. But in revolutions, you have to go all the way. You know, I cannot ask the guardian, the corrupt guardian of, you know, a, a, a castle or house yeah. or something, you know, uh, to to clean it up for me because actually this is he or what he or she. But what does that translate? Does what, what would that translate <clears throat> to you as a, a, a revolution that goes all the way in Lebanon? What what would that mean? Would that include protests in Baabda? Of course. And Ainatine against the speaker? I mean, is it the whole that every community has to kind of rein in yeah. their leadership? I think, you know, if you are, and this is, again, going back to this powerful and uh, simple but very powerful slogan of Kulun Yali Kulun, that mm-hmm. everyone is included, um, you have to include everyone. I mean, Then, then I want to maybe so, flip that around. We had three months of demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And just on, in a subjective way, looking at what happened, eighty mm. some days later, yeah, we don't see any protesters approaching Baabda, or for that matter, the speaker is pretty mm. much safe. Mm. There's no direct threat to their leadership right now. Why do you think that it, these things didn't happen, or or why is it the state, the system that scares those kinds of protesters away? What would what would deny them from reaching the gates of Baabda, for example? I, I think because uh, for Baabda, uh, some argued that you know we we can't just go against the president. The president is a symbol of you know the the, the country, and this will uh, even alienate further Christians. The the patriarch patriarch might mm. stand up against all of this and so on. So even the I protesters f- are are, yeah, yeah, are yeah. considerate yeah. of the system. Some the groups, of course, right. And that's actually, I think, a criticism of mm. uh, some mm. of the thinking among the protesters. Right. Um, for for the Ainatini, I think they were also faced by violence. Right. So. So they were concerned that this might uh, mm-hmm. might be violent and might be uh, might harm many many protesters. But again, if you want to go with the revolution and you need to think of uh, doing a major change uh, in the way you look at the state, um, you need to keep going. I don't think you need to stop and look into the you know the peculiarities of the Lebanese political system because you want to overhaul it altogether. So I think that's why, why yeah. I, I call it sometimes an uprising rather than a revolution. It's still moving in this, perhaps right. it might go into become a full-scale revolution, but it's still an uprising uh, with all the, you know, genuine and, and, and you know, clean and, uh, you know, natural movement that people created. I think mm. it didn't yet go into become at the level of a revolution. I want to get two ideas out here. And I like that you earlier you said there's a, a counter-revolution that's not just Lebanon, but it's in the region. Mm. You have the anti-protester protester. Mm. And you also touched on violence as well. In the three months that have passed, Lebanon stands out. Well, if I'm not mistaken, one protester died as a result of the last sort of political shift in Lebanon. Compared to Iraq, this is, I mean, astonishing. Let alone Iran, we had we potentially thousands of people died. So Lebanon, the violence has been noticeably small, and that's a good thing because the protesters 
felt bold and emboldened to keep going. Yet, as you said, they didn't storm the palace. Yeah. They didn't even reach the palace gates. Mm. Is violence the bigger issue here that protesters are afraid that this has, you know, the instability in Lebanon has led to real violence in the past Mm. and that the civil war is not that long ago? Is that in the background that people do not want to take the risks that are necessary out of fear of what could turn into a sort of an, an anarchic situation? Yeah, I think it's a, I mean, uh, when you look into uh, the way the groups, protesters groups, and they were thinking, and sometimes they put it online, sometimes in closed meetings, we discuss some ideas. And there's always, you know, the fear that we don't want to. Uh, uh, make this uh, move into full-scale violence. Mm-hmm. I think the civil war has continued to uh, mm. to be to be affecting our thinking, uh, mm. whether in our subconscious or or even consciously. Uh, so there's always this uh, concern that we need to keep it, you know, uh, peaceful and we need to keep it uh, within the whatever we're allowed to do. It was, and I'm going to interrupt you That's, here, because Kellun, this, which you said well, it's a, it's a magical phrase. Mm. That was the slogan shouted at the counter-protesters mm. when they attacked Martyr yeah. Square. Yeah. There was very little sectarian sort of yeah. uh, uh, name-calling. It was Kellun, they stuck to it. Mm. So, that, I mean, is it that they don't want to slide into a sectarian situation that everyone's afraid of that could be something uh, a way to to explain it or but i think uh, um if i think uh, loud with you on this yeah. i think part of it has to do with that the protesters um at least in beirut um they were mostly university students you know school students and uh, so they were not like those ready to push back, uh, and 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 for them for many right reasons, you know. I mean, that was a peaceful demonstration. I don't think we were expecting from them to be violent. Mm. But again, I think if you want to go all the way in seeking a change that everyone wants, uh, perhaps it should have been more bold at some points. Mm. Mm. I mean, I'll give an example. I think the the most powerful tool for the demonstrations was closing doors, shutting, you know, businesses and neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And that's quite a peaceful way of demonstrating, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Or protesting. You're Uh, including roads here and all... Yeah, yeah. All all areas, yeah, like the highways, the bridge, the ring uh, highway, or outside Beirut. That was the most powerful tool. Mm. When you go and shut the city and, you know, close those uh, highways and roads and so on, block them, you would actually create a big, a, a, a strong message. Right. Um, and when that stopped, partly because those counter-revolutionary were saying to the army and police, we will never allow this, we're going to be opening those roads and clearing those blocks even by force. And so people kind of, you know, uh, retreated on this. But when this is the moment when things started to slow down a bit. Mm. Mm. So, um, again, when we say they need to be bolder, they need to go all the way, it doesn't mean they have to go violent, but they can use all the peaceful means, including shutting the city down, 
you know, to demonstrate. This is what we see in Latin America. This is what we saw in other parts. This is what we see in Algeria. Uh, and so it doesn't in, have to be in, in, going into yeah. storming the palace, mm-hmm. but they can shut down the whole, you know, area around the palace, the whole neighborhood, the whole city, town, the no, suburbs. But that's interesting. So in the, in the background of that, we have a country that had degenerated dramatically, ec- economically. The situation is horrible. Is that part of the reason you don't see that much sort of, uh, um, you don't see commercial sort of businesses shutting down on their own? There's mm-hmm. no sign of a what you would see in other situations, whether it's Latin America or sometimes in Iran, where the, com- the commercial component sides with the demonstrators. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is part of the hesitation? I mean, it was played also that um, those when you shut down, you know, city and you close door, uh, roads, the, the strikes and, that you would imagine, and the strikes, yeah. they would also affect the economy. But the economy has been bad, you know, for mm. even way before the demonstration started. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure if it's good now in Hamra. If you walk now in Hamra, you think that businesses are not doing great, or everyone or every other neighborhood. Right. I don't think, but it was played by the media. Mm. And by the counter-revolution or the way to counter it. Uh, Right. And using it in social media, even senior politicians going on TV saying, you know, you're you're killing the economy and the economy has been screwed up for for, for years. So that's that's interesting. So it's not that the economy is bad, therefore people are less into it. That's not necessarily the, you can't draw a line there directly. But do you sense that, I mean, we last few days we saw unrest, enough to shut a few banks down. Uh, we've seen symbolic gestures. Ili Firzli being kicked out of a restaurant, he gets up and he leaves. And those are powerful moments, at least when it comes to, to media. People see that as a, as a small victory. Do you sense that that's where, the, that's where the strength is, that people should be going more in, in, along those measures? Yeah, I think, I think those are not, not small victories. I think they're mm. big victories. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, you cannot now um, shut down the whole city, um, do big strike, but you can actually make those politicians part of this ruling elite and mm. ruling class to actually think twice before they leave their houses. Yeah, um, They can make them actually think uh, twice before they go and vote in a certain way. Mm. Although some politicians are still thinking that this will be over. Uh, it's transforming into anger. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see now in banks, that's what we see in certain places. Right. This unrest is actually the result of anger. Yeah. Um, and that's perhaps a natural transformation of the protest movement. It mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. with people aspiring for change, going in happily with music, right. dancing, and then doing all these shows and bringing kids. Yeah. And it's beautiful, really. And the change has become very slow. You know? I mean, yeah. small victories until you're getting now you know, those symbolic, but actually quite significant. Mm. In, but they, these are the result of anger. Right. And, and anger may not be a positive thing for any moment. It could degenerate into something worse. It might generate to yeah. unrest. It might generate right. to certain attacks. Mm. Maybe, you know, you know, the vandalism now on banks. And, yeah. and But that's the result of the inability of the current political system to respond Right. I mean, all the response was either because of 
the intensity of the demonstration, like mm-hmm. what happened when they were able to shut down the parliament, mm-hmm. not to pass some of these, you know, compromising laws or acts around yeah. the amnesty law and so on. Or yeah, actually, we saw that at the beginning. That was very absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or or what we see symbolic reaction from the those in power. Right. Like yeah, of course you want a technocrat, we'll get you a technocrat. Mm-hmm. But they're ours. They're not like. And then and here actually people are going in a learning curve. The demonstrators are going in a learning curve. I think again when I said it may look like a reform, but in essence they want something new. They start to realize actually we really want something new. We need to overhaul the whole state because if you go in by the demonstrators, you know demands, they say oh, we want a technocratic government. Yeah, okay, we get you a technocratic prime minister. <laughs> and then they said, but this is not the one we wanted. <laughs> you know, you, know so, you, you couldn't so have this done is... this better for me. That's the perfect segue <laughs> to the elephant in the room. Yeah. I doubt that the protester that showed up on the street in October 17, 18, 19, had Hassan Dieb in mind. I don't think his name ever came up once among any protester. Not even after 70 days. Not even after 70 days, or maybe not even today. I don't think his name still is mentioned on any protester. And if, there, if it's mentioned, it's for the other reason. What's this guy doing? He clearly is not a product. He's not a byproduct of protesters' demands. He's the system, in a way, fighting back mm. in an unusual way, bringing out an unusual figure from out of unusual circumstances. So he's really not, I mean, he's the biggest accident of history. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that said, talking about the pushback and the state sort of entrenched and the system in a way preserving itself, in your analysis, is there one component of that system that stands to lose the most from proper reform? Because you've touched on different things, and there are well-established sectarian dynasties, political parties. Are are there ones that, in a way, are more afraid than others of perhaps losing more long-term? And I I mean, he's mentioned oftentimes as a pro-Hezbollah candidate. Mm. I want to unpack that more, though. Is it really that... Hezbollah wants Hassan Dieb to be prime minister, or is there something else going on that they're buying time, yeah. that they're waiting, as you said, for just protesters to go home mm. and try to go back to something that's a little more familiar? I mean, Hassan Dieb's profile, if you look it's at it... It's a great, it, great profile, 140 pages long, but that's... <laughs> that's not what I that's meant. That's something else, yeah. <laughs> but that's like, <laughs> his profile... <laughs> his profile... And that's without being prime minister. That's without being prime minister, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ticks the boxes mm-hmm. of what the demonstrators superficially, if you want to look at it superficially, mm-hmm. is what they wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, outside the, uh, the political dynasties. He's new to the system. Well, not that new because he was a former minister. Right, yeah. He's an academic. He's an established professor. He has like 100 publications. That's quite interesting because the former minister, few people remembered that he yeah. was a minister. Yeah. So it's really like a, yeah. he's a footnote in the long yeah. story. Yeah. yeah. And then actually that was this very smart move by the counter-revolutionists, if you want to call them this way. Mm. And uh, because they would say, listen, we got you. 
what you wanted. And that wasn't easy for a lot of demonstrators to actually um, understand. Mm. You know, I got mm. a lot of questions. When, I mean, and I didn't answer many of these questions. You know, he's, uh, he's an AUB academic. He's a senior. Has a senior position in AUB, mm-hmm. but I cannot comment on this. You know, uh, but people were kind. I mean, how can we read this? Right. And that has to do again with the maturity that the protest movement and groups active in the current protest movement in, in, in Lebanon need to go through. Hmm. Um, and um, so actually it's a smart move because he fits in. He, I mean, he he kind of, when you, it's kind of when you interview some, we want to have hire someone, right? You get the CV and you say, love, he's good. <laughs> Without knowing anything Without, else. That, exactly. Yeah, it's just like on paper. On paper. Not yeah. the usual suspect. Yeah. 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 I mean, hire someone and then... Yeah. I mean, but when you hire someone, you get you, you give them probation period of a couple of months, you know. And uh, so but that's, the country, what that's what he's entering a probation th- period for the, the thing. The thing is that the country, Lebanon, cannot afford the probation period. Mm, mm. Um, at many levels, the economy mm-hmm. is actually going really so bad. Um, the um, people are actually less tolerant, and that's what we see their anger now. You know, when they see the right. deputy speaker of the house, they kick him out of a restaurant, they see another official, they shout at him. Um, I've heard and stories. protesters in front of Dieb's home, I think, on a yeah, daily yeah. basis. On a daily basis, yeah. or on weekends, yeah. um, or on social media. Right. Um, so we cannot afford the probation period. Mm-hmm. And, and what's more shocking, I guess, for people is that the current, uh, the way of forming this cabinet goes again through the old means of forming those cabinet. You have, you have to wait for Gibran Basit to nominate his people, have to mm-hmm. wait for this party or X or Y or Z to actually put in their names. Um, some of the names are quite good, by the way. But again, You're talking about the ministerial, the ministerial floated, Those yeah. were leaked, at least, or right, were put right. in, in, in the press. Um, but again, I think people are, are against the whole setup, mm-hmm. the whole way of you know, looking into forming the cabinet and bringing in this prime minister. There is a learning curve for mm. the protesters. I mm. think they need to learn from this. Mm. And they need to be more bold. They need to put their themselves out more. You know, part of the success of the protest movement that it's leaderless, uh, and it took them actually a couple of maybe weeks or a month for some parties in power to understand who are they, right? whom we're dealing with, it was it was actually a telling moment where Aoun asks for yeah. the leader yeah. of the leaderless revolt. Was, yeah. And even the journalist says this leaderless. There's yeah. no leader. And he says it cannot. It cannot be. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. That's the pre nineteen ninety thinking and then this is the nineteen ninety not the nineteen nineties. I mean this is the millennial you know, sure. generation. Yeah. They work on so organically, you know, it's a networked, organic so the strength, the strength is that it was leaderless and the weakness is it's that it leaderless. remains leaderless. Exactly. Yeah. So mm. they should have been more out there. Um, and there should be some kind of a move towards more and more structured political action, like a political mm. party, mm. a political movement maybe, but not just leaderless street movement. Then I want to get into the... So that's actually yeah. the concern around Hassan Yab, you know. So right. 
the profile fits, yeah, of course, but this is not what we wanted. Yeah, okay, so so actually because you didn't put something out, you didn't put someone out, you didn't put the real right. profile that you want out in a very bold way. But let me ask you then, that, that kind of ties back to the other point. Assuming a leader needs to emerge at some point, or a team of leaders, do you sense that the reason they're not visible or they don't want to identify themselves yet is because they will run into the same obstacles that people have in the past, which is the way Lebanon has worked, mostly since the civil war ended. Violence tends to end that type of leadership. Mm -hmm. And Lebanon witnessed a string of political assassinations. This time around, there's not a visible target. I mean, what I'm getting at is, does the counter-revolution in a sense, want a leadership to then put against the wall and put in a hostage-like situation? Or are they ready to accommodate the street? I'm trying to project a bit into the future and and why why these these steps are not being taken. Mm. I mean, partly... No, it's a very good point. I think partly... um, because it's the, the the whole movement is uh, comprised is comprised of small groups, mm-hmm. and the dynamics are different than having, you know, like the leader, right. and, and like leading the crowd. Although some ex-army generals tried to play this role, but they were kind of rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to move into a political action, you need to have more structure. So I think partly because these are small groups and they all run as if. They're, you know, work together as a cell, as a group, as a... But I guess also the fear of the repercussions of being Mm -hmm. known, although they became known after that. I mean, I think there are... You can easily now identify between 50 to 75, you know, uh, faces of the the uprising. Sure, there's faces. And they're on social media. They're on social media. They see them on TV. Exactly. But they're not political leadership yeah, in, Yet. in the way Lebanon's used to. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't mm-hmm. think we, we we might get the same leaders that mm-hmm. we we've we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, before. But I wanna add something new mm-hmm. actually to this discussion. Most of those faces are actually you know, the normal person. They go to work. <laughs> they need to mm-hmm. earn a living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, political leadership in this country has been until recently or mostly is seen as being part of a you know a dynasty yeah a family that you need to have a jet you need to have a, an entourage of 100 people you need to have a, a castle in the mountain and a palace in, in, in Beirut and, and a those, patronage network and, and a patronage that. network yeah. and you need to pay for the fuel of those yeah. people and you need to and so on yeah. and the, actually most of those activists and the active faces, the more active ones, I guess, are people that need to go to work, nine to five. Yeah, they're yeah. academics, they're running, uh, you know, their organizations or their accountants or or or, mm-hmm. or maybe small and medium businessmen and so on. So, and this is something interesting because in the first days of the uprising, many questions were raised: Who's funding it? Who's funding it? Who's funding you? Who's, I mean, again, I mean, no one is funding it. These are small tents. cost like 50,000 liras. <laughs> and people reacted in a, in, a, in a most beautiful way, saying, listen, we're only getting them manushi and uh, like uh, and sandwiches. And even some expats started 
right. reacted yeah. to this and saying, listen, we we're going to put in some money and mm-hmm. we're going to uh, contribute and donate and so on. Um, but, but at the end of the day, many of those in the squares have to go back to do some work. And right. this right. has to be seen also in this way. Uh, mm. if, if some of those spaces run their you know, small organization or a small business or their academic academics or school teachers or engineers, they have to still do their work. So That's interesting. So it's, it's the fact that they're but, but, not... But, but we yeah. need to change the nature of the political action in the country. Hmm. Or if I put it maybe a different way, we need to change the the way we professional professionalize politics in Lebanon. Hmm. Like you are the za'im, you are the leader, you are the chief, you have to open your house. It has to cost you thousands <laughs> of dollars. Right. I want, and many people want, a, a professional politician who goes in to do their job you know eight to six and go back home oh eight to six is already i think uh, that's the most optimistic (laughs) optimistic, (laughs) but i mean live a normal i mean of course being a politician is not a normal life but this is it's it it, it needs to be seen this way i don't want to have a, a prime minister or a president or a speaker or any mp or politician or a minister who's expected to be you know running like a celebrity and uh, and that actually creates this crony capitalism you mentioned earlier on that actually creates ways for embezzlement and you know relying on the on the resources of the state so if I understood you right I mean I'm going to give you a personal story Mm -hmm. I I studied in AUB in the 90s Mm -hmm. and uh, some of my (laughs) colleagues at that time were also are now in politics Mm -hmm. Maybe a bit older, maybe younger, but we are in the same in the current situation. In the current yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I did. <laughs> I worked for many years. I did my PhD in. in so you've got dirt on them. Not <laughs> <laughs> that much, but I mean, I I I work hard. I did my PhD. I came back to UB. I'm a mm-hmm. professor. I'm a director of an institute. I earn my living. I have a family. Um, I still, you know, live like most people in their forties do now in this country, right? Or, or in any other place. Right. Supposedly, you have your mortgage, you pay it, mm-hmm. and you try to make ends make ends meet. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and those who are my, you know, generation who are now in politics, some of them own a lot of real estate. Yeah. they have their perhaps we hear stories of having private jets. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe they have their friends with private jets. It's actually through their position in politics mm. and through position in the state, actually has, this is what led to their enrichment and they're becoming richer. And right. Whether actually they're doing it legally or quasi-legally, I don't know, but it's actually the position of power that made them have access to more and more fortunes or more and more opportunities. So again, if we go back to the equal opportunities that we need to have in this country, we need to create a political class that works hard to to justify, uh, you know, uh, to work hard in, in, in running, you know, the politics of the state or being professional politicians, but they need also to justify whatever they can earn and not to be to see their position and power as a source for right. getting richer and richer. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm clear about it, but, uh, no, but that's, that's the thing that actually daunts me all the time, mm-hmm. that 
Um, I don't want to have a prime minister that has private jets and has an entourage and has and you know, right. you need to have an, a prime minister that can go back home, be with his family or her family, and okay, of course this is not an easy job, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, you know. But again, we don't. I I, I want to see a prime minister who can walk on the streets, who can take even a taxi to do his or her job, and of course feel the pressure of running a country. But we're not after those politicians who want to practice their za'ama or leadership. At the end of the day, if someone like you're describing a, I mean, a technocrat in the true sense of the word, somebody who's skilled at their job, mm. just goes, works, and goes home, mm. doesn't really see beyond that, or un- reluctantly sees beyond that. Mm. Do they reach the same point where if they overstep the way the system works and the way the violent component of the system works, do they face the same predicament at the end of the day? Mm. That there are issues in this country that do not allow for, in a way, the dream situation that you're describing. And I'm careful here because I'm not, I don't want to say it's all about Hezbollah. Mm. And it's not all about Hezbollah and Mm. corruption in this country exists with or without that group's Mm. ability to wage war and, and security issues and all that. At the same time, the most visible pushback was from that side. It was a very clear line that was delineated by Hassan Nasrullah saying these protests are in a way over. You're either supportive or you're against Hezbollah. Mm. And that's a very, very different tone than others in this state, this power-sharing monster that we live with, Mm. who are really after their private jets Mm. or after their patronage networks or maybe after what you're describing, their bank accounts. And is there an inability to usher in something new because of the violence that Lebanon is used to. Not just sectarian, not just civil war violence, but targeted assassinations yes. and the like. Yeah, yeah I think, <clears throat> no, you're, you're, I mean, there, during the, the last few days, you know, uh, we've seen uh, character assassination mm. rather mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. physical assassination mm-hmm. as we saw, you know, in 2005 and on mm. for like a few years. And, and people were scared. Hmm. And, uh, of the character assassination. Or yeah, 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 yeah. This yeah. would lead to something right. else. Yes. And people were, their profiles were put on, on social media. Mm-hmm. There were uh, wrong accusations. They're getting money from here and there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, of course, doing politics in, in this country in particular, and this part of the world, but in this country in particular, is, is actually... Uh, an occupational hazard. You know, I did I did the research on political assassination um, after Hariri, uh, after Rafael Hariri, and actually, uh, if you look, I think there are around uh, nineteen assassinations. Or there 15. were there were twelve successful, yeah. including Hariri. Yeah. I think yeah. the number is I'm not sure the exact number. The total targeted. We're, we're, there were, I mean, this you know we have the the few that. Yeah. Survived, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So maybe around fifteen. I mean, if yeah. you get a short period of time, uh, and there was a picture uh, during the uh, the burial of uh, 
Pierre Jmail. Mm, yes. Uh, Pierre Jr., son of yeah, Amin. Yeah. Where actually, um, Amin Jmail was sitting, uh, was standing, of course, in, in, in full sorrow. Uh, and there was Saad Hariri, mm-hmm. uh, Walid Jumblat, Naila Mawad, right. uh, and Samir Jaira. And probably Sam Ismail as well. And Sam wasn't. I wasn't. Yeah, yeah it yeah. wasn't. So but right. it was like Amin. Yeah. You know, lost his 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 brother uh, Bashir and his son Saad lost his father. Right. Blood lost his father. Yeah. Nail Mawad lost her husband. Right. So see, and that was like the picture, except for Sam Jaja. I mean, all the others had some kind well, of. One can argue he's there also because of his, the leader of. Yeah. Bashir died and Samir yeah. stood. Yes, yeah. even he's he, part of the story. He's part of the story, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. But I mean, those yeah. had some DNA sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. relatives. Yeah. I mean, or right. they, they actually were 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 clearly uh, had some target, some someone yeah. in their in their political family or dynasty. Mm-hmm. And you see that? Wow. Okay, really, politics in this country is quite tough. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think people think twice now when they want to engage publicly. To become professional politicians, if I put it this mm, way, about mm. the repercussions of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, part of it is like dealing dealing with the mafia, right? Uh, and and it's not only after two thousand and five. I think historically, there are a lot, a lot of political assassination as a way to settle differences in this country, right? Um, so From its birth, we've been used to it, yeah. 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 And, and I think people would think twice of it uh, before they engage. I mean, the risk of it. Yeah. And then you would hear some, like uh, some of the counter-revolutionists saying, "You know, we can easily wipe you out. Your price is only a bomb or a rocket mm. or something." You mm. know. Mm. So yeah, and if you come from uh, a professional in your field, <laughs> like you know, a small businessman or an engineer or an academic, and you're part of this revolution or uprising, you would start thinking, "Wow, what I'm getting into right. this?" Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, 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 would, so, yeah. so, when we say it's an occupation hazard, it's actually a really tough mm. uh, position to be in. But, but again, if you're gonna go and do a change, it's it has to come with sacrifice. I, wanna, I mean, again, I'm yeah. not. I'm not saying that people have to go and put themselves out and and you know, be suicidal. But but there's no change without without the big bang. You know, the the initial week I thought had a lot of what you're describing mm. and things that don't happen. Mm. Tripoli and mm. Nabati mm. at the same time demanding mm. the same thing. Yeah. I thought that was probably the biggest type of shift we could hope for mm. it's kind of simmered it went away drastically yeah. but that that was a initial sort of mm. this could be something unique yes and it was a unique moment i don't know if it will translate down the road to mm. anything else i uh, want to wrap up by asking the role of a think tank or the role of academia in policy public mm. policy um, I've spoken to many of the writers of this emergency reform plan, mm-hmm. the emergency economic reform plan, mm-hmm. the initial draft. Mm-hmm. I believe a second one is coming out soon. Mm-hmm. And Nahad released the 10-point plan. Mm-hmm. And none of them are politicians. None of them are current politicians. And they're all from 
I think, out of a sincere belief that they're doing what they think is right and offering solid analysis on how to mitigate the crash, the economic crash. Mm. Speaking to Joseph Bahout, I asked him, did anyone in a position of power in this country read this paper? Mm, yeah. And he said it bluntly, he said, no. Or at least, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. And that startled me because I think many protesters did look at that summary and they maybe digested quite a bit of it. It's there, yeah. it's accessible. And it was you know, puzzling to me that no one in the political establishment even bothered to look at it. Mm. Let's focus in on something like Aysan Affairs, the, uh, an important center for AUB and a place where all these issues are debated and discussed and thought through and analyzed endlessly. Do you see any ability for places like this or, or academics to play a central role in the transition or the potential transition away from the old governing methodology to something new? Is, is there a role for Isan Ferris or any think tank or any academic or any specialist? Or am I sort of being a little too naive here that these are not part of the story right now? I want to get your sense on that. I think we've always been part of the story. You know what? I mean, what's the the um, value of the think tanks that you uh, you actually convene different views? Um, you convene also producers of knowledge and users of knowledge, and mm-hmm. you try actually to work around it, which mm-hmm. is a bit different from a typical research center or academic center where mm-hmm. your audience is usually academics who want to read your work and right, uh, right. peer. Uh, you know your peers elsewhere, and want to compete with them. Where you publish and and uh, and uh, the impact of your publications and so on. Mm-hmm. But for us and other think tanks, and particularly for a hybrid model like like ours in yes. Exxon Faris yeah. Institute, that we are based in an acad- in, in in the you know uh, most respected academic institution in, in the Arab world mm-hmm. in the Middle East, and uh, but also we engage with those users of knowledge. So we try to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to bring on those ideas and inform all the discussions and debate. We're aware that change is is you know, almost impossible to have in a short period of time. But also we believe in accumulation. So you need to keep working. You keep mm-hmm. working mm-hmm. in policy science. We call there's a window of opportunity that sometimes happens, and you need to be ready for this window of opportunity. If this window of opportunity is open now, you should have prepared for it. So that's what we do. We research, we debate, we produce, we inform, and that's what we did in the uprising. We took us a few days to understand what's happening. Yeah. I mean, personally, we're all part of what's happening, but as an institute, and we started looking into ways of contributing. And the way we start to contribute is actually to inform the debate. So what the Constitution says about the resignation of the Cabinet, what, is, what does it say around right, right. how the change and the transformation should happen. And then we looked into the sectors we work on, because people were saying it's the economy, it's the energy sector, it's the environment. So all those sectors we work on or issues we work on in the Institute we started also to debate how to move into some kind of 
ريكفري بلان سالفيشن بلان نيو بلان تو ريفورم دوز سيكتورز اند ذن وي لوكت انتو ذا بروتسترز وات دي وونت وات دي وونت اند اند ذات واز فيري انتريستينغ واي اوف وي جاست كومبايلد وي وي مابد اراوند 52 جروبس ميبي سم اوف ذيم ار مور استابليش اذرز جاست سوشيال ميديا جروب بت وي لوكت انتو ذا ديماندز اند وي جروب ذيم in terms of the frequency of them yeah. and we did some kind of visualization and debate around it and so on and so forth. So this is what we do. You need to inform the debate, but you need to be out there and you need to look into the potential users of your knowledge, whether it's the general public or the prime minister or an MP or a civil society or the media. So this is what you need to do. Always be out there, try you know, to from, inform it. From my own subjective view, I, I've used my phone, I think, for the entire revolt. Mm. I've watched my Twitter feed. I've read through as much as I can. I don't know the last time I opened a newspaper. I just skim through content. And in that world, in that mess, I've watched videos produced from ISOM fairs and it's just panel debates and there's video feed and people are engaging. And it is definitely, there's an audience. But do you think the audience includes those currently in power and I, I'm asking in terms of just crisis management mm. it's apparent now the citizen citizenry is not going to be involved in, in transition that it's unfortunately going to be the political class that finds its way either to sustain and, and survive mm. or eventually fade away but eventually mm. are they are they plugged into any of these debates in, in your opinion Do you sense that there's anyone that is sort of really searching for ways to ride out the crash or at least help the average person survive this stretch? No. Unfortunately, no. Hmm. Um, I mean, being in AUB as, as, a, as a policy institute, we, we had the usual connections with people in power. You, know, you had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the parliament, with the prime minister's Even office. The director was a minister of, of, of several portfolios. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. I mean, yeah. So, so that would give us some um, you know, connection mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. those in power. Yeah. Uh, professionally, of course. So yeah. we would have some work with the parliament uh, mm-hmm. because this is the mother of all institutions. You know. yeah. uh, so sometimes we do have connections. We're called for certain advice. Uh, we provide whatever we write, we send to them. Sometimes they call back asking mm-hmm. for something. But for the current uh, crisis and yeah. the meltdown that we expect, um, I haven't seen anything... Uh, professional in the way that those in power are trying to to actually tackle or trying to look into solutions it's and astonishing and though because that's, that's the moment to save save face in a way and yeah. restore your name and i mean that really is yeah. astonishing yeah and and i think it has to do with with this the way the system has been shaken as well you know mm. and mm. and uh, Uh, and some, some of the think tanks and civil society groups and scholars shied away from dealing with those in power. Um, so there was also right, a two-way right. thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even if you were invited to meet someone, you would say, like, ah, I think twice. I don't, I don't want to be seen <laughs> in the same place with this guy or this official. I mean, so again, that, this part that might of, be part of the story. That yeah, but it's not the full story. I mm. think I think when you're going through a major crisis like the one we have in Lebanon, um, 
from two you know ends from the 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 put the sadly the potential for an economic meltdown and from people's going to the street angry seeking change you just go and you know open your toolbox and get the best tool out of this to deal with it right right and what's the best you know tools for Lebanon is human capital yeah you know right. these are the tools for Lebanon mm. in the diaspora expats or those who live in Lebanon mm-hmm. think tanks people who live who work in international organizations and businesses elsewhere you bring them I mean this is how you do if I go through a crisis in the family I go into my assets <laughs> right yeah. I don't go into my you, you definitely know. don't leave your children out the door you don't wait exactly. for them to starve to death exactly yeah. the crisis you have to look at your assets you go yeah. to your elder or you go to whatever you know assets you have you mm-hmm. open your toolbox and use the best tools to mitigate yeah the crisis and this is what we don't see in Lebanon it's either because of incompetence and that's actually huge by the way yeah uh, among the political uh, yeah. class or many of them, or it's actually arrogance. And those combination is sadly the bad recipe for disaster. That probably is the, that, that blend, I think, is what took enough people yeah. to the street because yeah. they saw yeah. it. Yeah. They laid, lived through decades of it. Yeah. And they, it really is that sort of two-way, uh, terrible street. Mm. And I, um, I hope if things are to improve, that more advice is taken from these sort of centers because it's it's a shame where you have people offering their free time mm-hmm. and without a receptive audience in the governing uh, establishment. It's great that the citizens can see this and read it, but that's only one small step. I mean, people in power should be able to understand just how Absolutely. grave the situation is and search for ways out. And the solutions are there, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be easy. I think there are a lot of ideas and solutions mm-hmm. uh, from different groups, think tanks, even individuals, academics, active people, and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's a way to synthesize all of these. And that's what's missing. And in um, the story, there is, there is optimism, yeah. and there's also some... I think there's a lot of optimism, honestly, but there's yeah. also the concern that... Uh, this time, if, if there's an economic meltdown with the current geopolitics in the region, mm-hmm. it might be quite significant yeah. on everyone. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a simple thing just to go in having uh, more than half of your population getting poorer right. and um, queuing for, for meals. This yeah. is going to be something that we haven't seen in Lebanon, even with the, with the you know, harsh years of the civil war. Right. I think that's the unfortunate unifying uh, issue. Everyone is in pain. I hope that pain translates to some form of pain relief, yeah. not more pain. Thank Shall you for your time. I really appreciate pleasure. this. And no, thank you for letting me do this in your office. Pleasure. I think this office is an occupational hazard because these <laughs> walls are going to fall. If I push I'm kidding. No. Yeah. Yeah, they're, uh, I think it will continue to stand. This is absolutely... An earthquake cannot shatter this building. No, it cannot. AUB will sink. I sound Ferris will stand. <laughs> no, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, sir.